Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate locations across the United States. I would normally say we're a uh, New Orleans-based podcast, but I think the three of us actually have closer ties to Baton Rouge as a group, as like a subset <laughs> of the, uh, the website. Yeah, that's, that's factual. You can't argue with that. Unfortunately factual. <laughs> we're also all binded by the uh, bitter cold right now. Um, Boomer is seeing the worst of that because he's oh, in Austin. yeah. yeah. I, I'm surviving. So we're lucky to have you here at all. I'm glad to be here, and I'm I'm lucky to be here too. Have you been able to watch any movies in this hell week that we've all been living through, or um, have you mostly just been working on survival, which is obviously totally legit? I've mostly been focused on surviving, but I've managed to imbibe some media. I started rewatching the television show imposters that's not really what we're here to talk about but i am i will plug imposters formerly of bravo bravo somehow made a somewhat prestige comedy dramedy that i really enjoy but also for the first time since i saw it in theaters watched inception i had such a hype backlash like hype aversion to this movie like i went and saw it in theaters and i was like oh that was pretty good and then you know, there's this whole like sphere of the internet that is just all up on Christopher Nolan's dick. And they love the movie Inception, you know, which it's great. I actually thought it was better than I remembered. But I hadn't seen it in so long because I got so kind of tired of it being every go to favorite movie for people who fancied themselves kind of deep. Not that it's not deeper than what a mainstream blockbuster usually is but you know had some some trouble separating it from its legacy it follows in the footsteps of like a fight club or like a pulp fiction like it's not that the movie's bad it's just it gets talked about so much that it just sucks up all the oxygen in the room it often becomes such a beloved thing for all the worst people that you know and <laughs> yeah. that becomes part of the problem where you know it gets caught up in its own own hype a little but other than that, no, I haven't really watched any movies. What about you, Allie? Um, I was able to watch Baccarat, which is also Brazilian, conveniently enough for our podcast. And I really loved that, actually. I, you know, I, I keep seeing it described as like a Western, and that's not inaccurate. But it's also just such a movie with like wonderful, radical, like mutual aid politics that I just I love that. Yeah, I love all the communal solidarity in that yeah. movie. Like, there's no main character, really. It's just about like an entire town um, getting their revenge on the people who are like oppressing them. Yeah. It's also like sci-fi in a way that you would not expect based on like the revenge Western descriptor that gets put on it. Yeah. I did not expect the, the sci-fi as much either. That was great. That was on our top 10 list last year uh, as a group, too. That makes perfect sense. Um, and I think my second favorite one that I watched was Palm Springs. I really enjoyed that. I was a lot funnier and more charming than I expected. One of many uh, Groundhog Day movies making the rounds right now. Yeah, but I feel like it was softer than Groundhog Day. It's more hard. Yeah, the main character isn't an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> At least not as uh, as bitterly so. Yeah. Did you see the trailer for that YA version of that story that came out like this week? Oh, yeah. It's got the kid from American Horror Story Apocalypse. That was literally the only fact 
from that trailer that managed to embed itself in my mind. It has the most generic title. What is that title? I have no idea. It's like the map of tiny, pretty little precious things. (laughs) (laughs) It's an extremely vague title. But uh, yeah, I kind of like that that device is being run into the ground, though. Like, you'd think that would be annoying, but I like that it's being applied to so many different genres and like... Yeah, I mean, I love a good time loop. I mean, I haven't watched the other Netflix one, but there's a Dark. It's like a German one. Oh, that's a good one. I love that one, really. Because usually my problem with time travel and time loop and time paradox things is time travel is just dumb like it's always just so dumb and i think that was like the one that was like yeah this is a bad idea (laughs) what were y'all's thoughts on uh happy death day which actually i didn't see i only saw happy death day to you but i want to hear your thoughts on both of them if you saw both of them i like it okay it feels like a callback tonally to like the slashers we grew up with the like post scream kind of like uh i know what you did last summer the faculty disturbing yeah, behavior yeah. the kind of thing you'd expect freddie prince jr to pop up in it feels like that style of almost like blockbuster bloodless like pg-13 style slasher yeah and that kind of i kind of wish it was a little more vicious but uh it's it's still funny and cute and i don't know has some good gags that actually does remind me, I did watch one other movie since we last spoke, and it was Disturbing Behavior, and I saw it on television, which made for <laughs> an extremely bizarre viewing experience. Because I don't know, do you guys remember Disturbing Behavior at all? I remember Flagpole Sitta from the commercials, and I remember renting the movie, but nothing else. I mean, that song rules, <laughs> still. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that one. Okay, so I have a very strong fondness for this one, even though of the post-Scream movies, it's one of the worst. But I also feel the same way about Urban Legend, which is absolutely terrible, and I adore it. But Disturbing Behavior is just the Stepford Wives, but for the high school set, you know, the same way that the faculty was invasion for the high school set, etc. And the opening scene, there's like a character who, you know, has his like blink-out, psych-out, you know, crazy killer moment. And it happens because he, like, has an impure thought and does an impure thing. But because it was edited for television, it jumps, like, a solid minute of screen time to just, like, from the kissing to the killing. And I'm wondering how anyone who would happen to catch this movie on television without knowing what's actually happening could possibly understand (laughs) what's going on in this film. And I watched it through its entirety, and it is incomprehensible edited for television. And it's strange, because the edits seem to be the same edits that they did probably 15, 20 years ago when they first put it on television. It's not edited for our current like content prudishness, which just makes it even stranger. But it's a movie that the rebellious love interest is Katie Holmes. It's one of the movies I most associate her with. She pops out of the truck, uh, out of the bed of that truck, and just says, Razor, out of the side of her mouth as her (laughs) replacement word for cool. And I was shocked how late that introduction comes in the film. Because I was watching it with Kat, and I kept being like, oh my god, wait, just you wait and see who the love interest is in this. Yes, obviously it's got God's prettiest angel, James Marsden. Yes, 
It's got Nick Stahl doing a weird thing. But just wait. Just wait till you see who the love interest is. It's a solid 30 minutes, at least edited for television with commercials, but also missing huge chunks of the film. So I'm guessing it evens out. 30 minutes in before Katie Holmes shows up on screen. What a baffling decision. Well, she was the star of the trailer. I can tell you that much. Yeah. I feel like she was all over the ads for the movie. I remember that and like the, um, when they convert the kids and they put them in this like really complicated looking like dental gear. Like it's like a big head piece. Yeah. Most of that is on the cutting room floor for television for some reason. Oh no. But yeah. So Brandon, what have you been watching? I have been watching 2021 movies. I've been waiting for new stuff to pop up on the streaming services I subscribe to and eagerly jumping on them the minute they're there. The two I want to bring up are both like really pretty, like candy colored comedies that are like really bitter. So two like kind of dark comedies that look pretty. One popped up on Mubi. They had like a free day on Mubi. I think on Valentine's day, they just like opened the app up so that you didn't need a subscription to watch anything on there. If I had any more money in my like monthly subscription pocket, I would pay for Mubi. There's 31 movies on the service, or maybe 30, and they switch one out every day of the month. So you have like a whole month to watch every new title. And the Uh reason it's interesting is because it's just extremely well curated. It's like Criterion Channel level, like actually thoughtfully put together. And they do a good mix of like older art house titles and like new stuff that's exciting. The reason I mention them is they, they are handling the distribution of this movie Dead Pigs. It was the debut film of Kathy Yan, who um, directed Birds of Prey last year. In 2018, she had this like debut movie at uh, Sundance Film Festival called Dead Pigs, and it just got good festival reviews and like had a good word of mouth, and no one bought it for distribution. It just kind of sat on the shelf. But she got the Birds of Prey job off of that film, so that now her first movie is coming out second. Um, <laughs> because of the weird distribution structure that we have from like the festival to the screen pipeline. And if you liked Birds of Prey, I think this has like a very similar visual sense, like lots of pastels and lots of neon colors. It's really pretty to look at. But the uh, genre is completely different. Like it's one of those like everything is connected, like hyperlink movies that were like really popular when we were in like in high school. Uh, like shortcuts. Shortcuts, me and you and everyone we know, traffic, like that era of like 10 main characters and you don't really know how they're connected until the end of the movie. This one is at least interesting from its angle, though. It's like set in modern Shanghai and the characters are all very different people. Like one owns a salon, the other one's a waiter, one's a pig farmer, one's an architect, and they're spread out all over the city. And The thing that binds them is this epidemic that kills all of the pigs on the local pig farms. And they all start floating downstream from the pig farms into Shanghai and are sort of like becoming like a public health crisis. And there's like this giant mega corporation that is sort of steamrolling the more rural characters and like replacing their actual homes with like these giant towering condos. But, you know, that all sounds very like... I don't know, serious. (laughs) Like that sort of like economic tension sounds very like heady. Uh, And the movie is actually really fun and chaotic. And I think has a lot of the anarchist humor of birds of prey, very like broad comedy 
and characters sort of gleefully misbehaving inside of this uh, larger drama about, you know, corporate greed. Very much worth a look. I, I don't know if Mubi has like a free trial you can check out, but every now and then they do some kind of promotion. Um, and they're the only place you can watch Dead Pigs since it was in festivals. Okay. Sounds cool. Yeah. The other one, um, a lot easier to access. Uh, I Care A Lot, uh, which came out on Netflix maybe like two or three days ago. I'm bringing this up mostly because we just did an episode on Gone Girl last week. And Rosamund Pike plays a heartless um, sociopath uh, in this like dark comedy called I Care A Lot. Oh, I've been hearing good things about that one. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot brighter and more colorful. It's like snappy in a way that Gone Girl isn't. But it is nice to see her inhabit that kind of role again where she just sort of callously fucks with other people's lives for her own entertainment and profit. In this case, she's like scamming older people out of their livelihoods and their homes and their freedom and like a forced conservatorship uh, situation that is like a real life thing. It, it's a lot like um in, in Unsane where that woman gets like hospitalized against her will in this like sort of like bureaucratic nightmare. That's the same like opening to this film, except instead of being in the victim's head, you are watching the person who is exploiting her um, enjoy the profit um, and sort of like gleefully skip away with the money. And then she fucks over the wrong old woman and everything spirals out of control and she gets wrapped up in this like crime thriller plot and she's like weighing over her head. And the movie's just sort of like vicious and violent and cheekily funny and looks like candy and is just super mean. I had some problems with the way it all wraps up, but for the most part, I had a lot of fun with it, and this is a really good, like, nasty sugar rush of a film. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I think both of those films, obviously, probably have a lot of today relevancy, but just makes me think of Britney Spears, obviously. For sure. Anyone who's lived a certain amount of time in Louisiana has been following the conservatorship (laughs) surrounding her, or at least I hope so, you know, we, we all care about her. Yeah. That is the dictionary word of the month, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think there was like a a long form investigative article about the people who do this thing in real life that inspired this this movie uh, maybe a couple of years ago. So maybe it is kind of callous to even be making this like flippant glib black comedy about this like real life evil that people are doing. But um, I I think a lot of people had similar problems with Unsane for the same reason. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that movie very much as well. So maybe, maybe it just takes a certain sensibility to enjoy it. I also was a big fan of Unsane. It really made me feel trapped. It really like captivated a feeling. And I think we've talked about this before, that what I love, what excites me most in seeing a new film, what I love most, and what creates the most novel experience for me is when a movie can just take like a feeling and completely externalize it so that I can watch it outside of my body instead of feeling it inside. And no movie has ever made me feel as anxious as Unsane did. It completely externalized that feeling in a way that's like, like makes my body so tense, but is also beautiful. And I think he gets like uh, Soderbergh. I think he gets like the uh, ugliness of bureaucracy down in a way that like no other director does like all those like fluorescent lights and just like ugly rooms in that film. Yeah. Very accurate, I think, to like probably what the horror of it feels like. 
not to get back on how our mutual connection is Baton Rouge and bring up soda yeah. again, but <laughs> but I care a lot. Um, by contrast, is it kind of starts there? It starts with that like real life bureaucratic nightmare, and then turns into something much fluffier and more preposterous and over the top. Brazil is home to the most famous party on the planet, Carnival. And Rio de Janeiro, Brazil's most famous city, hosts the centerpiece. An extraordinary two-day parade that is truly the most amazing procession on Earth. Yeah, so this week I had us watch Black Orpheus because while we watched a Valentine's Day movie, we hadn't done any Carnival movies. And... It's late, but I figured better late than ever. So Black Orpheus, it was made in 1959. It's based off of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, but it was also based on a play that was written by a Brazilian that takes place in a favela of Rio up on a hill, and it kind of follows Orpheus as a bossa novan guitarist and he falls in love with obviously Eurydice and um they do the whole myth thing where she dies and he tries to follow her which you know is always interesting with retellings of myths and fairy tales and all of those things because it's like does it pack the emotional punch i would say yes in this case but maybe that's just because i love love it's sappy of me but yes I'd say the other big thing about this movie is it's just kind of Brazil. The experience, you know, we have carnival, we have the favelas, we have like samba and bossa nova. There's even like a little hints here and there to capoeira. And I think it's really interesting to have a movie from this era that's entirely Afro-Brazilian actors almost. But I know a lot of people think it's more exotification and I know it popularized like a lot of the things that is still most of what we know about Brazil and I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on I guess the whole Brazilian aspect and what y'all thought of that um I do know that like one of the major times this has been cited in like modern discourse was because it was in Obama's book when he was talking about how his mother took him to see this as like her favorite movie and like why she got into anthropology and it infuriated him. He was like, Oh, this is like a racist depiction of, you know, the happiness that poor blacks can find in this world was like the way he described it. Just being happy with your status as like a poor person living in this like rural area um, and just dancing when you're allowed to in the city on this like one day every year. I can't comment on any of that stuff because that's not my experience yeah. <laughs> in, in this world. I can say that I do find the movie very celebratory. Um, I, I think like you were saying, it is it has kind of like a documentary eye where even though they are, you know, staging this myth, this like very familiar myth, even the characters in the movie are aware of, yeah. you know, the fact yeah. that there is like uh, an Orpheus and a Eurydice who are going to be like hooking up. They're like, oh, you two should get together. It's obviously fate that is set against a very naturalistic backdrop where it feels like a lot of the stuff captured on camera would have happened whether or not they were staging a drama there. Yeah. 
I remember that from uh, the discussion of Obama's book as well. And I think I remember him saying that it was, it upset him to think that his mother thought that this was so great. I don't remember him being as upset with the content of the film itself, but I could be misremembering it as well. I could be as well. I mean, that was a few years ago, uh, obviously. But there is some like subtle colonial criticism going on here in the sense that everywhere they go where they're dealing with someone who has even the smallest modicum of power, that person is white. Whether it is the sort of train station attendant who gives Orfeo his paycheck or the grocer from whom Serafina and Eurydice have to beg for food, or the man giving them their marriage license and being a real weirdo while he does. All of those (laughs) are white people. And even whenever they are doing their performances and they're wearing like French colonial wigs and French colonial dresses, Mira's in particular, but a lot of the women are wearing these gold French 18th century dresses. And there is some sort of commentary happening there about the way that it has just infected this place to the point where no one is questioning it. I would also point to how at the end of the myth, he's supposed to go into the underworld to pull her out. Right. And I know Hades isn't necessarily exactly hell, but you kind of think of it as like him descending into hell to like save her soul, you know, Um, or at least bring her back from the dead. And you would kind of think, just based on the synopsis of this movie that that would be him going into the chaos of carnival. Like the hell would be some sort of like overwhelming hedonistic aspect of carnival. But really it's this like white bureaucracy that he has to go into to like rescue her. Um, after her death, he like goes into this rabbit hole of these like white offices and these like sort of like bureaucratic urban spaces that are just separate from the, uh, I don't know, more humanistic world that he usually occupies where he, you know, plays guitar all day to his kittens and chickens. There's something fascinating going on with the fact that the stand-ins for the gods in this film do share their skin color with Orpheus and Eurydice. Hermes is also a black man and the man who takes him, who I guess is the stand-in for Sharon or Karen, depending on how you pronounce your Greek, but the ferrymen of souls across the Stygian river, they are not white people. So there's like this white bureaucracy that has imposed itself over this actual culture, but doesn't have any power over their like actual beliefs or souls. Yeah. I was going to say, because the only place where he actually hears anything from her soul beyond the grave is the, uh, Condomble? I, I looked it up because I knew it wasn't Santeria or Voodoo, but it has a lot of the same beliefs and stuff. That ritual that they go to in which you hear her voice through the old woman behind him. So I would say it's it's interesting that they go through all this bureaucracy and he can't even see her get a hold of her there. But then he goes to this very like African-based religious ceremony and he actually gets a glimpse of where she might be. And that's where he like finds humanity again. Right. Cause like the bureaucratic offices he goes into before that are just filled with paper and there's no actual people around. Like once he gets past the realm of like the cops who are like kind of 
at the periphery of that stuff. Once he actually gets into the buildings, it's just paper. There's no people. Yeah, it's very surreal. Yeah. You know, it's like this labyrinth of just surreal checkpoints that have nothing to do with. They're not connected to any like actual human interaction until he gets to that room where they're having that ritual where he actually does hear her voice. And there is so much life and ritual and like people interacting in that room. And you finally, you kind of feel like you're getting back to that Samba beat that has been pounding through most of the movie um, as Carnival approaches. Music has so much to do with just life in this film, like the way he makes the sunrise with his beautiful song and like animals follow him around because he plays guitar so beautifully and that Samba beat sort of like gathering people into like various parades around the city as they're just trying to go about their day. I think it's very important that he finds music in that room where he finally uh, reconnects with her um, and then loses her for the final time. And I think that's pretty indicative of like carnival in general. Like one of the things I really love about Mardi Gras year after year is just, it feels like you're entering this realm that hasn't ever actually stopped. It feels like a continuation of a world you visited a year before and the year before that, as far back as you can remember. And it is part of, of it is that like constant rhythmic beat like that samba rhythm in this movie is something you will hear on the streets in new orleans as well as uh, in brazil and it just feels like almost like an olympic torch like that fire actually doesn't go out even if you're not hearing it um in between those those events it's like ancient yeah yeah like mardi gras is like brigadoon that comes around yeah (laughs) yeah I, I think the other interesting comparison between this and Mardi Gras is, is, like you said, just people going about their lives, just getting swept up in it, and it's easy to see the surrealness of it, even if you're just living it. And it was really interesting to watch this again for that, because I think I had watched it pre-actually going out and spending a lot of time during Mardi Gras in New Orleans, so watching it after years and years of having been there for it, it was really really fun to see those similarities with that too like the whole like samba school being very similar to second lines and that sort of big sort of organized sort of not just dancing party just parading down the street it seems like chaos but they are spending an entire year on costumes and like practicing their dance routine as a group and i think the movie at large is kind of like that too like it's it seems like documentary chaos but there's also this like rigid structure of the myth attached to it as well which is a pretty brilliant device to like try to capture the chaos of carnival you like apply this very like recognizable story template to it i think there is like a push and pull between like it looking spontaneous and it is you can get swept up and like pulled off in any direction but there also is like a very rigid ritual to it and people put a lot of effort into making that beautiful chaos happen every year i I think it captures the actual spirit of the holiday in a way that very few films do because it's hard to capture it's it's magic it really feels like that sort of magic like this is a party like you said just the constant beat and life and people in the streets it really captures that i was gonna ask about the myth though I know you said it was a good uh, framing device, but it's also quite different from the original myth. And as far as retellings of myths, since you already know the ending, did this work? Did this retelling work? (laughs) Yes, because there was something that I really felt 
like I didn't know it was going to happen next about, which is that in this movie, in which everything is very realistic, yes, there's an Orpheo, yes, there's Eurydice, yes, they're playing out this myth again. Other than death, which is, you know, stalking and running around, until death actually was like riding on the side of the ambulance, death could just as easily be like a weird stalker from Eurydice's hometown, like she believes him to be. And as Orpheo begins his descent down that stairwell into like this red checkerboard bottom room before they go across the street and past Cerberus the dog and everything, I had no idea what was going to happen next because the film was clearly like real. Like there was not going to be a way that Eurydice could actually come back to him. Because to me, when I interpret that myth, when I think about it as a, as a narrative, I'm always hoping that, you know, he just doesn't turn around. That's what the general common interpretation is. It's like, oh, it lives in the same mythic place as Lot's wife, where she turned around and turned to the pillar of salt. But while I'm on the journey in this film, I have no idea what's going to happen next or how it's going to play out because there's no way in this film she can come back even a little bit, even though, I mean, I guess she does with her voice, but by that point, it's sort of like broken the quote unquote reality of it. Not that I mind, but I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. A lot of times when you're watching something like, Oh brother, where art thou? Part of the fun comes from just being like, Oh, it's, it's the Cyclops. Oh, it's the sirens. I did not, that was not the primary component of my enjoyment of this. Did um, portrait of a lady on fires debate, about whether that was a folly or a choice influence your viewing of this? Because I couldn't help but think about that scene where they sort of discuss the merits of that choice uh, watching this again. No, it didn't really change my perception because to be honest, I didn't 100% buy that interpretation and couldn't quite uh, remember exactly how it went down because it's been a year now. I mean, I, I at least appreciated that it's like a... I like that literary discussion in that film because it challenges the you know standard interpretation. Like you were saying, like that Lot's wife parallel. It makes it more like a deliberate choice. Um, in, in this movie, it doesn't play out that way. It is like a boneheaded mistake that he makes. Um, he he could have had her back maybe um, if he just like followed the rules. That's the thing is I didn't see a way for him to get her back in this. Like I don't think that there was any other way that this could have happened than for him to turn around and see her speaking through that older woman. She was never going to be back in her body. They were never going to be together again in in this realm on this side of paradise. Well, they have a pretty easy out of not having to figure out how to realize that because that's not how the story goes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fair, fair. But yeah, that was... I guess that was what I was trying to say before is that like, there was no way that it was going to happen. So that that particular tension was gone. It was just going to be, what were they going to do differently? Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Um, him feeling tricked by, uh, the spirits, the Orisha there, that her voice is coming from this older woman. The pain and the betrayal he feels in that moment is very, <laughs> I feel like as the, as an audience, um, as soon as he starts looking for her in that like bureaucratic labyrinth, you realize the movie is sort of on a magical path. It's not necessarily like a real world logic anymore for that last like 15 minutes. But I don't think he ever accepts that in any way. Like he's not like, oh, something supernatural is going on. He's actually just looking for her. 
like he's very skeptical in that room where they're doing that ritual the entire time. He's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what y'all are going to do for me, but I don't know. I, I feel like the audience and the character are experiencing two different things. And, you know, his descent into this very, like, stubborn, I'm going to get her back, almost blinds him to the fact that there's a lot of strange going on. He doesn't seem to think it's strange to be in this building full of papers and stacks and a lone janitor. He seems very single-minded in those moments. Whereas for the audience, I think we're very much experiencing how things have taken taken a turn. Yeah, he's, he's taking a very practical approach to a very, like, illogical, difficult-to-pinpoint situation. Like, the, the rules of that world are very confusing to us as well as him, but he's sort of just, like, plowing through it, trying to bring her back. I think it is interesting that he does get her body at the end. I always forget about that, that he does manage to get her body and just carries it with him back to his house. And it's it almost feels, you know, a little Rose for Emily style there, except for the fact that he <laughs> finds out his, his cottage is burning. But yeah, it's kind of, uh, what was your plan here? What were you planning on doing with her? Hmm. Yeah, good question. I guess giving her like a proper burial in like a natural environment instead of just leaving her in that cold morgue. Yeah, yeah. Because the guy does talk about experimenting on bodies. Yeah, cold, silent, white room guarded by yet another like white man. Yeah, a white man who's talking about taking the bodies of the dead from Carnival and using them to study for science. You know, bodies of predominantly black people. I wanted to talk about one of the floats in the parade that goes by. We see a little bit of a parade and there's one that has like little rocket ships and planets on it. (laughs) And even like there are women like kind of astride a couple of like paper mache Sputniks. And I was watching it and I was like, those can't be Sputniks because I had misread the description before turning the movie on and thought that it came out in 54. And I was like, no, Sputnik was in 57. That can't be from Sputnik. But it actually came out in 59. So it would have been shot in 58. So Sputnik would have been big news, big brand new news. And I did like seeing that insight into like the commentary on contemporary politics via Carnival Float, which is, you know, a tradition that continues to this day. For better and for worse, depending on the uh, crew you're watching. Yeah, for better and for worse, depending (laughs) on the crew, depending on the city. Uh, depending on where yeah. you are. I also find it very fascinating that like Mari burned his house down. She did not give a fuck. <laughs> she, and honestly, she hits him with, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but she hits him with that rock. And then she's like, no, like, what did you think was going to happen? You hit him with a rock while he was standing rock. by a cliff. Yeah. Like, and they had already had like the discussion of, um, people can't go that way. There's a cliff there. There's an awful lot of like danger near cliffs in this movie, um, which I thought was uh, like an interesting touch as it like overlooks the water. Yeah, you know, of course, this extremely like poor shanty town has extremely dangerous conditions. You know, they're yeah. they're overlooking a bare like cliff face. No, no guardrails. And there's no pretense that this is not that there isn't a successful city nearby or even just like by the port like they spend a lot of times looking at a bunch of really drab gray 
but like ornately sculpted buildings in the city before they go all the way up the hill to you know where everybody's shanties are i think that's why partly why i love that villain character so much too like i know she's supposed to be like a hothead impulsive sort of like overbearing monster in a lot of ways but the fact that she is so dedicated to getting the most she can out of every situation like she wears the most beautiful clothes um she's always the center of like every dance uh scene except the one that they plan out together as a community but you know downtown whenever she's dancing in a crowd like she is the center of attention because she's so beautiful and um flamboyant um i I like that contrast uh versus the surroundings like she feels like she belongs to a much wealthier city than any of the people around her and um, I can't begrudge her that. Like I, I love that she's like squeezing as much out of this lemon as she can. She is a she is a big time drama queen diva. And on oh God, we stand. I was gonna say I kind of kind of love her, even though you know, as Serafina put it, she's mean. She's so mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, Serafina, who is like her best friend, is immediately just like, yeah, go go bone her boyfriend. I don't care. She's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I also love Serafina as a as a character. She's kind of like the vivacious, like nicer Mari. Yeah. In a way. Is Grease Cliffy? I don't know if I'm revealing some ignorance in that. I'm gonna be really honest and admit that in my mind when I think of the Orpheus myth, the interpretation that I go to first is the story that takes place in the Sandman graphic novel slash comic book series. It's so beautifully done. And there are a lot of cliffs in those drawings. Whenever Morpheus goes to find his, his son's head, you know, they're high, high in the hills and the cliffs on the seaside. And I don't know anything about Greece's topography and if that's accurate or not. And if like the, deliberate choice of setting this in uh, Rio, which also has these cliffs that overlook the ocean was an intentional like evocation of just like the physicality of the place. I think Greece does have, have some cliffs or, you know, all the pictures of Greece I've seen. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's like seaside cliffs and like houses on hills. And I'm pretty sure it's a thing. That is one thing that would prevent you from um, setting it in New Orleans. Uh, there's no height at all. <laughs> it's all below sea level and flat here, so we'd have to come up with something different. New Orleans is a city made for an Oedipus Rex retelling. Oh, yeah. You know, you could even have like take, take have it take place during Mardi Gras and like the crew of Oedipus Rex. I'd buy that. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think it's the the one town that would really embrace being associated with such a really messed up play there it would not be the first erotic thriller exactly set here. yeah <laughs> yeah on three everybody name your favorite new orleans erotic thriller three two one dracula 2000 cat people <laughs> you know i i was gonna say is cat on a hot tin roof does that count i i'm having a Ooh. hard time what's the one where um robert de niro plays lewis cypher oh angel heart <laughs> That's a classic, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Does that take place in New Orleans? Yeah. All I remember, like, the outdoor farm scenes with Lisa Bonet and, like, lots of, like, 
sinisterly lit interiors, you know, where there's like a light behind a fan that's going real slow to let you know just how big the threat is. <laughs> you know, I did watch Black Orpheus on Mardi Gras Day um, as a double feature with, I think, my favorite movie about New Orleans, Always for Pleasure. It's about an hour long. It's a documentary. That's such a good one. I mean, all of Les Link's documentaries, it's, he really captures like the regional culture and like the characters of wherever he's filming. It's great. And I think the two movies together um, gave me what I needed on Carnival Day. Like it was freezing cold. I was doing nothing to acknowledge the holiday besides that double feature. But they, they both really capture the like communal beauty of their respective versions of the holiday and the sort of like wonderfully planned chaos of both ends of that as well. Like hearing people in both movies talk about how much planning and um, just communal art project collaboration goes into making those things happen. And then also how you can just get swept up in the momentum of it and just sort of like lose your place uh, there's this anecdote in Always for Pleasure where this woman talks about when she was a teenager, um, she started dancing with a, a parade, she started dancing with a brass band and sort of followed the procession. And then all of a sudden her and her girlfriend were like miles away from where they live. They were like uptown and like could not figure out how to get back home on foot. Um, <laughs> she's like, I never followed a parade again. And yeah, I think that's like a pretty clear parallel to the kind of like beautiful chaos of Black Orpheus as well. Like. I think it captures that sort of like intoxicating citywide party that happens in both of these cities in, in two distinct, but you know, paralleled ways. I love how innocent it all seems like no one is drinking themselves into like vomiting on the streets. And it's like, Oh wow, this is actually like lovely. Like this is what, this is what could happen if like it was a little bit, maybe like, I love the sleaziness of Mardi Gras, but it's like, oh, this is what it kind of like looks like if it were a nicer citizen, not so touristy, where the tourists come in and kind of just like puke and, you know, party and ruin everything. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I just, you know, watching it and I was here with uh, my husband and my, my niece and she was like, yeah, I wish Mardi Gras was this nice. And I said, like, to me, it reminds me of how if you're a local you get up and you go to the quarter mardi gras morning like before any of the tourists get there it really had that feel to me and that is like mardi gras it's most magical and you know the gays are everywhere everything's colored and covered in glitter like people are dancing in the streets there's all these beautiful beautiful costumes there's the crew of saint anne there's a crew divine the official swamp flicks crew (laughs) <laughs> um and so that's that's really the the mardi gras that i hold in my heart and uh reminds me reminds me of this movie it turns very quickly into being a lot like mardi gras though as soon as the cops show up and you know they're just rounding <laughs> yeah. people up on the street there towards the end when orfeo is looking for her body and trying to figure out where it is they're just it's just like everybody on the street corner into the paddy wagon now. Like there's not there's not a question and it's pretty brutal. And that's true in real life too. You like avoid Bourbon Street, you avoid the cops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I am home at like 3 p.m. on Mardi Gras day. Yeah, that's that's the goal. It is what you make of it in a lot of ways. If you go to Bourbon Street or you go to like the St. Charles parade routes, it can be really 
trashy and upsetting, but um, it's about the people that you build your experience with. I mean, the real Mardi Gras is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I love Death's costume. Um, I did want to make note of that. I don't remember whose suggestion it was for us to watch Girl Walk All Day five years ago. That was me. I thought about that a lot too watching this. Yeah, because that also was a movie that was full of like strong dancing energy and music and in which our lead is pursued by a dancing death. I thought that was really fascinating. I loved Death's costume. I loved the abstractness of the skeleton on the body sleeve was really impressive it was like he like left the scene immediately to go like perform with phoebe bridgers it was so good i loved it (laughs) it's like geometric and like almost cubist or something it feels like very um harsh and modern compared to you know the world he's invading um so it's a really effective contrast because no one else in the movie dresses like that. I was actually going to bring up like the, the myth sort of aesthetic of this movie and how instead of having these very like elaborate like effects, it just goes for the practical. I mean, obviously, the carnival visuals and the cliffside, it's all very beautiful and magical. But when it comes to the actual myths, it's very guy in a really, really cool skeleton suit. Cerberus is just a charming shepherd. We've got the underworld being just a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, Yeah, I really thought that was interesting that instead of going fantastical in that direction, it's kept very earthly in a lot of ways. Thank God they didn't try to put two paper mache heads on that dog (laughs) to get the full effect. (laughs) Perfectly fine as is. I loved the kids who follow Orfeo around. For child actors, they were doing great. And also I loved like that the film ends with them and the rising of the sun and a new day and possibly a new Orpheus, you know, as, as a new kid becomes the master of Orpheus's guitar. I thought that that was really beautiful. Yeah, and it's another thing that just sort of continues that like ancient, the music never dies um, tradition of this as well. Like, there's like a continuation and like a magic to this ritual that, you know, the individual people do matter, but there is like this like older shared intangible aspect to it as well. I, th- I think that's true to the better parts of carnival. I'm very glad we revisited this. Th- this did bring some like actual carnival flavor to my year in which it was like severely lacking. It was pretty much just this and King cake um it's like all the mardi gras i got this year um yeah even though we are like a week late i very much appreciated um having something to do on the day that you know connected me to this thing that is like the only religious ritual i participate in every year yeah i this was like my fifth mardi gras in exile and i remember in 2019 i was like oh man i'm not going to be able to go to Mardi Gras this year but next year for sure in 2020 I'm definitely gonna go nothing can stop me and then of course COVID but once COVID started I was like (laughs) man I didn't expect for it to drag on for an entire year you know I really underestimated how much people were going to be willing to put up with lubricating the machinery of capital with their blood as long as it fit like a certain political uh, ideology but 
I was still thinking like, man, 2021 at least, I'm going to go to Mardi Gras. Now it's like, man, is there, <laughs> will there ever be a Mardi Gras again? So I was glad to have this uh, to experience in my exile as well. It's like a little bit of warmth in a movie, even if it kind of a little tragic too. That's the Ash Wednesday come down at the end of the film. Yeah. You're supposed to feel a little bad because uh, the party ends and you have to like go without for the next 40 days. And you know, whenever y'all do come back down here for Mardi Gras, we do have an official Swamp Flicks walking crew. Allie already mentioned Crew Divine. If you want to come dress like Divine, you can. Or if you want to just come eat snacks with us in the quarter, uh, that's that's usually what we do on Mardi Gras Day. And the next time we do that in person, it will be our fifth year as Crew Divine. That was supposed to be 2020. That was one of the sadder cancellations. But Five years is exciting. That's good news. Yeah. It's shocking, honestly. I, <laughs> but I do see, like, looking back at the early photos of us versus the last year we did it, it's like, oh, I actually got better at doing divine makeup over those <laughs> five years. Something happened. Next week on this show, we are going to be talking about comedies starring talking cats. This was a James selection. You're going to be watching <laughs> really really dumb bottom of the barrel comedies about talking cats that is the next topic which ones i'm hoping grumpy cats christmas i did review that for the website years ago but um sadly no the centerpiece film is the uh citizen kane of the genre which is david dakota's <gasps> a talking, talking cat <laughs> wow man i'm so happy which i actually have never seen even though i um used to go out of my way to watch every like quote-unquote worst movie of all time selection so uh, this is a long time coming for me be on the lookout for that one weird piece of furniture that david takoto has in his living room since he shoots everything in his house now that is like the back of a volkswagen it's just like the back seat of a volkswagen like cut out and used as a couch he even left it in um db cooper versus bigfoot or whatever that one was called that one's even supposed to be set like in the 60s and he still has that like 70s volkswagen couch he's so lazy i love it he's living <laughs> the dream you keep expecting to hear like something really bad about him you keep expecting for him to get milkshake ducked but i think it's all on the surface it's all it's all there he just wants to keep making movies and hanging out with hot guys and you know who could blame him yeah, he's just like living the dream. I just want to film some twinks taking showers <laughs> in my house. Let the man live. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Give him what he wants. All right. Well, more David Dakota talk next week. Now I kind of wish we were just watching a bunch of David Dakota movies, but that's not happening. Um, maybe on a future date. And I'm happy to tease that uh, on the next uh, Lanyap episode, I will be having Brandon and Allie watched the 1997 Canadian sci-fi film Cube, which neither of them have seen somehow, so I'm very excited. Yeah, another embarrassing blind spot. That one in a, in a talking cat. I'm missing out some like a talking very cat. major powers of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well I'll talk to y'all inside the cube next time around. Good night everybody. Stay warm. Bye.